Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for October, November and December 2013. Titled The Sanctuary, it is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 4 for October 19-25, to 25, Lessons from the Sanctuary. Sabbath afternoon, October 19. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come today to grapple with the story of the sanctuary and some of the lessons we can learn from it. And as we picture it in our minds, as we picture its meaning, as we accept the salvation that comes through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, we just pray that your Holy Spirit will be here to guide and to bless as we open your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text for this week is Exodus 25, verse 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them. Let's read that again, Exodus 25, verse 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them. The sanctuary is one of God's major devices to teach us the meaning of the gospel. As we study the sanctuary this week, the drawing below will be helpful. Now, this is one of the difficult things I'll have to try and do, is give you the drawing in words. First of all, if you can imagine, on the left-hand side, there is a square. That is the most holy place. Adjacent to it, and contiguous with it, double the size, is the holy place. In the most holy place, there is the ark, with the mercy seat and cherubim in the center. There are four pillars holding up the veil. And then we move backwards into the holy place. Just through that veil is the altar of incense. And on the top wall, there is the table of showbread. On the bottom wall, there is the lampstand. And then there are five pillars at the entrance on the far right. Just outside the holy place is the laver. And to the right of that is the altar of burnt offering. This week's lesson focuses on some of the major insights provided by the earthly sanctuary. We will study the sacrificial system later. Sunday, October 20, Place of the Presence Question. According to Exodus 25, verse 8, what was the purpose of the earthly sanctuary in the wilderness? What amazing truth does this teach us about God's love for us? Exodus 25, verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. In the Garden of Eden, sin had broken the face-to-face relationship between God and humanity. Sin forfeited our first parents' unhindered communion with God. However, the Creator still desired to draw us to Himself and to enjoy a deep covenant relationship with fallen humanity, and He began this process right there in Eden. Centuries later, in saving Israel out of Egypt and establishing the sanctuary and the sacrificial system, God again took the initiative in bringing humanity back into His presence. The sanctuary thus testifies of God's unceasing desire to dwell among his people. This is God's idea. 
in Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. His ultimate goal is relationship and the sanctuary services were his chosen means to illustrate that relationship. The sanctuary is the tangible evidence of God's presence with his people on earth. From the descriptions in Numbers chapter 2, it is evident that the tabernacle was located in the centre of the square encampment where, as was customary in ancient Near East, the king would place his tent. So, the tabernacle symbolises that God is the king over Israel. The Levites, meanwhile, placed their tents around the tabernacle, and the other tribes put theirs farther around at a distance, in groups of three. This illustrates in a tangible way both the nearness and the distance of God. Another purpose of the sanctuary was to provide a location for a centralised, divinely ordained system of worship. Because God's presence in the midst of the people was jeopardised by their impurities and moral failings, he provided a system of sacrifices and offerings through which unholy people could live and remain in the presence of a holy God. So, in this context, the sanctuary revealed details regarding the plan of redemption, which included not only the sacrifices, but the ministry of the priesthood, which was an integral part of the plan of redemption as well. To finish today, with the sanctuary, the creator of the universe, the one who made all that was made, lowered himself to dwell among homeless wanderers in the desert. John 1 verses 1 to 3 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. How should this fact alone help us avoid harbouring ethnic, class, or cultural prejudices against anyone? Monday, October 21, Be Ye Holy. Exodus chapter 40, verses 9 and 10 reads, And thou shalt take the anointing oil, and anoint the tabernacle, and all that is therein, and shalt hallow it, and all the vessels thereof, and it shall be holy. And thou shalt anoint the altar of the burnt offering, and all his vessels, and sanctify the altar, and it shall be an altar most holy. These verses in Exodus 40, verses 9 and 10, show us that the sanctuary was to be regarded as holy. The basic idea of holiness is separateness and uniqueness, in combination with one's belonging to God. From the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Ellen White comments, volume 2, page 1010, we read, The typical service was the connecting link between God and Israel. The sacrificial offerings were designed to prefigure the sacrifice of Christ and thus to preserve in the hearts of the people an unwavering faith in the Redeemer to come. 
Hence, in order that the Lord might accept their sacrifices and continue his presence with them, and on the other hand, that the people might have a correct knowledge of the plan of salvation and a right understanding of their duty, it was of the utmost importance that holiness of heart and purity of life, reverence for God and strict obedience to his requirements should be maintained by all connected with the sanctuary. Question. Read Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2 and 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 14 to 16. What is the primary reason for the people to be holy? Leviticus 19 verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. And 1 Peter 1, 14 and 16. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. God's holiness transforms us and sets us apart. His holiness is the ultimate motivation for the ethical conduct of his people in all spheres of life. And that's described in Leviticus chapter 19. Whether that be observing the dietary laws of Leviticus 11, respecting the priest of Leviticus 21, or not conforming to former lusts, as we've just read in 1 Peter 1.14. Obviously, God wants us to grow in holiness as we become closer to him. This change can come about only through a self-surrender of our sinful natures and through a willingness to do what is right, regardless of the consequences. So to finish today, think about yourself, your habits, your tastes, your activities, etc. How much of what you are and what you do would be considered holy? It is kind of a tough question to face, isn't it? Tuesday, October 22, Instruments of the Sanctuary Question. Read Exodus chapter 31, verses 2 to 11. What do these verses teach us about the making of the objects in the earthly sanctuary? What link is there with Genesis 1, verse 2? Also look at Exodus 25, verse 9. Well, first of all, Exodus chapter 31, verses 2 to 11. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed I, have appointed with him Ahoyelab, the son of Eshemach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests, and the anointing oil, and sweet incense for the holy place. 
according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And Exodus 25 verse 9, according to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Of all the objects in the sanctuary, the Ark of the Testimony was the supreme symbol of God's presence and power. The name derives from the two stone tablets of the law called the Testimony in Exodus 32 that were placed inside the Ark in Exodus 25. On top of the Ark was placed the mercy seat with two cherubim overshadowing the cover with their wings. It is appropriately called the atonement cover, for it conveys the idea that our compassionate and gracious God has reconciled the people with himself and made every provision for them to maintain a covenant relationship with him. This is the place where once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur in the Hebrew, atonement for the people and the sanctuary took place. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Paul refers to Jesus as atonement cover, usually translated as propitiation or sacrifice of atonement. For Jesus himself is the place of redemption, the only one whom God has made atonement for our sins. In the holy place, the first compartment, the lampstand continually provided light, and the altar of incense produced the protective smoke that concealed the presence of God from the priest. On the table for the bread of the presence were placed twelve loaves of bread, representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Dishes, pans, jars and bowls, as described in Exodus 25, also were placed on the table. Although little information is given about the significance of these items, it seems that they represented the elements of a covenant meal— as recalled in Exodus 24, verse 11, and served as a constant reminder of God's covenant with his people. Exodus 25, verses 16 to 21 reads, And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat, and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And so to finish today, read Romans chapter 3 verses 25 to 28. What great hope can we take from the promise of salvation by faith apart from the deeds of the law? Romans 3.25-28 Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. 
Wednesday, October 23, Centre of Divine and Communal Activity. Question. Read 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 31 to 53. What more does this text teach us about the function of the sanctuary? When anyone sins against his neighbour and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy, because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by any one or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy and they take them captive to the land of the enemy, far or near, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent, and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. And, when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive, and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people, and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace.' 
that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to do your inheritance. As you spoke by your servant Moses, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. At the dedication ceremony of the newly built temple, King Solomon offered seven kinds of specific prayers that could be offered at the temple. The seven functions exemplifying the extensive role of the temple in the lives of the Israelites. The temple was a place for seeking forgiveness, verse 30, for oath-swearing, verses 31 and 32, for supplication when defeated, verses 33 and 34, for petition when faced with drought, verses 35 and 36, or other disasters, verses 37 to 40. It was also a place for the foreigner to pray, verses 41 to 43, as well as a place to petition for victory, 44 and 45. That the temple was intended to be a house of prayer for all peoples, Isaiah 56.7, becomes evident from the fact that Solomon envisioned the individual Israelite, the foreigner, and the entire population as petitioners. Question. The sanctuary was the ideological center of basically all activity in Israel. Religion was not just part of the believer's life. Even if it was a major part, it was life. What does this tell us about the role that our faith should play in our lives? When the people wanted to receive advice or judgment, or if they repented of their sins, they went to the sanctuary. The sanctuary was also the hub of life during the desert years of Israel. When God desired to communicate to his people, he did so from the sanctuary. Therefore, it is appropriately called in Leviticus 1.1, the tent of meeting. So to finish the day, think about your prayer life. How deep, how rich, how faith-affirming and life-changing is it? Perhaps the first question you need to ask yourself is, how much time do I spend in prayer? Thursday, October 24, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Time and again, the Psalms show that the sanctuary plays a significant part in the relationship between believers and God. Well known is the firm conviction David expressed at the end of Psalm 23, that he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David's foremost wish in Psalm 27 was to be in the presence of Yahweh, a presence which was best experienced in the sanctuary. In order to show how much he cherished the sanctuary, David used the full range of expressions to refer to it, calling it the house of the Lord, the temple, the tabernacle, and the tent. It is there that one can meditate and behold the beauty of the Lord. Verse 4. The activities of God in the sanctuary illustrate some crucial points. He keeps the worshipper safe and hides him in his sanctuary, even in tough times, in verse 5. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. 
God provides secure refuge and assures peace of mind for all who come into his presence. These expressions connect the beauty of God to what he does for his people. In addition, the sanctuary service with its symbolic significance shows the goodness and justice of God. The ultimate object of David's deepest desire was not only simply to be in the sanctuary, but for Yahweh to be present with him. That is why David resolves to seek God in verses 4 and 8. One thing I have desired of the Lord that will I seek, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And when you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. Question. Read Psalm 73, verses 1 to 17. What insights did Asaph receive after entering the sanctuary? Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet have almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance, they have more than a heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression, they speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore... His people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them, and they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence, for all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus... Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children, when I thought how to understand this. It was too painful for me, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Psalm 73, Asaph addressed the problem of suffering. He could not understand the apparent success of the wicked, while the faithful were afflicted. He himself almost slipped, but... Going into the sanctuary made the difference for him. There Asaph could see the same power and glory of God that David mentions in Psalm 63 too, and recognize that the present conditions will one day change and justice will be done. He could reflect anew on the truth and receive affirmation that, in the end, the wicked are on slippery ground and the faithful are secure. For those who seek God the sanctuary becomes a place of confidence and a stronghold of life, one where God will set them high upon a rock, as in Psalm 27, verse 5. From the truth that the sanctuary service teaches, we can indeed learn to trust in the goodness and the justice of God. Friday, October 25. From the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 343, we read, 
For the building of the sanctuary, great and expensive preparation were necessary. A large amount of the most precious and costly material was required. Yet the Lord accepted only free will offerings. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering, was the divine command repeated by Moses to the congregation. Devotion to God and a spirit of sacrifice were the first requisites in preparing a dwelling place for the Most High. And that brings us to our five discussion questions for this week. 1. Dwell more on the question of God's justice. We see so little justice in this world now. Why then, without the ultimate hope of God's justice, would there be no hope of justice at all? 2. Someone wrote, The tabernacle is a piece of holy ground amid a world that has lost its way. What does that mean to you? 3. Read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. In what way do you understand God's holiness? What does it mean to be holy yourself? How can we become holy? For the sons of Eli are an example of people who were close to God, but who lost their appreciation of His holiness. We read about that in 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 to 17. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would go and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. How can you avoid losing a sense of God's holiness? Why are prayer, study and obedience crucial in helping us to preserve the awareness of His holiness? And question 5. There's a quote first from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 354. The most important part of the daily ministration was the service performed in behalf of individuals. The repentant sinner brought his offering to the door of the tabernacle and, placing his hand upon the victim's head, confessed his sins, thus in figure transferring them from himself to the innocent sacrifice. By his own hand the animal was then slain, and the blood was carried by the priest into the holy place and sprinkled before the veil, before which was the ark containing the law that the sinner had transgressed. By this ceremony the sin was, through the blood, transferred in figure to the sanctuary. The question is, how does this quote help us to understand the ways in which salvation by faith was revealed in the sanctuary service?
Inside Story. Our story this week is titled Persecuted and Victorious. Hang the heretics! The angry mob shouted, shoving my neighbour and me toward a makeshift gallows. Rough hands slipped a noose over my head and shouted, Now will you repent? No, I said, and the noose drew tighter around my neck. Months earlier, I noticed a man reading a Bible on a bus. He saw my interest and urged me to buy a Bible and discover God's truths for myself. Then he invited me to visit the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I bought a Bible and began reading, eager to share what I was learning with others. On Sabbath, my wife and I walked two hours to the next village to visit the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Church members gave us eight Bibles to share, and a layman offered to come to the village and study with us. I gave out the Bibles and invited my neighbours to study with me. Soon my house was full of people who wanted to know God's Word. But when the local village leaders learned of the Bible study, they accused us of making trouble and threatened us. The next day an angry mob came to arrest my neighbour and me. We were told to renounce our faith. We refused, and the men placed the ropes around our necks. As I prayed for my family and the new believers, someone cut the ropes. They let my friend go, but they beat me and threatened me. Still, I refused to deny Christ. Eventually, they let me go. But as I hurried toward home, I noticed some villagers following me with machetes. I ducked behind some tall bushes and ran home, where the Seventh-day Adventist layman waited with my wife. "'Come and stay in our town for a while,' he urged. We gathered some clothes and our animals, and we escaped to the neighbouring village, where we stayed until the church could work out a solution with our village leaders. At night, we sneaked back home to harvest our crops so we would have food. Soon, my wife and I were baptised.' When it was safe, we returned home, free to worship and share our faith with friends and family. The village leaders gave us land, and we built a church. Today, more than 300 Seventh-day Adventists and many visitors worship with us. We praise God for turning persecution into praise. Part of a recent 13th Sabbath offering helped to build churches in my region of central Mexico. Thank you. Augustin Cruz is a farmer and a lay worker in Oaxaca, in Mexico. This week's reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Your reader has been Dr. Percy Harold. Remember, God is always faithful. <laughs>